All right. How's everybody doing? Just finished a night of candy collection. That's all I'll say, you know. Tell you what, COVID didn't shut Halloween down. My son came home with like, I mean, I've never seen, I don't know if people are like, you know, COVID's been so tough, we gotta give candy to the kids. I mean, he had a mountain, like, I mean, he may or may not have taken one of those bowls where they said, just take some because of COVID and said, shing, and his thing, I don't know. I mean, there might not be some integrity in the pastor's kid, um, but it's pretty pretty amazing. Hope you guys had a, uh, an amazing time last night and and uh, man, I am so excited. If you got your Bible, turn me to 2 Kings chapter 6. We've been in Romans for a while. Everybody's like, where's that? I don't even know. Um, we are back in the Come and Listen series, uh, which some of you don't even know what that is. Some of you, it's your favorite. Like I, of any series that we've done here, anytime I mention Come and Listen, there is a, there's a small subset of you, maybe a large subset, but the ones that let me know, this is my favorite. And what the Come and Listen series is, is while you're, you're just trying to figure it out, is we've been traveling in this series since 2014, and we've been going systematically kind of through the Bible from Genesis all the way up to 2 Kings chapter 6. We've made it this far, right there, since 2014. That's the Come and Listen series. It's, a pretty, it's, it's amazing. And the idea is that we would dig into these individual stories of God's faithfulness and how he interacted with his people, his individual redemptive plans in some of these individual situations in this kind of narrative arc of scripture. But not only that, that we would zoom out of scripture to see the complete narrative arc of scripture that leads to one person, leads to one event, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our salvation, the reconnection of his, of, of his people, his creation to the heavenly father. Pretty amazing. And, and on every page, on every page of the Bible, what we see is this layering of the story of God and his redemptive plan that's leading to Jesus Christ himself. It's pretty amazing. And today is really all about um, opening your spiritual eyes. Like if there was anything that's, you know, in this passage that, um, you, you, that will jump off the pages and what you'll see is this idea that your spiritual eyes can be open. And I'm just telling you, when, when I you know, started digging in this passage, which actually was back in March, because we jumped out of this series to get into Acts when COVID started, and we were in the Come and Listen series, and we kind of jumped out of it. So I went back, and obviously your, your mind changes in terms of the culture and what's happened, but the hope that's on this page, and this isn't just preacher speak. This is like, you, you could have walked in here I know every time we gather, there's people that are walking through different things. And I know just because I've got friends in this church and I pastor this church, there's people that are walking through difficult circumstances. There's people that are walking through things. There's people walking through anxiety and depression, people walking through, you know, potential uh, life-threatening situations with their health, people walking through divorce. I mean, there's a lot of things. And I'm just telling you, there is hope today in the gospel. It's bigger than just pulling your ticket, biding your time on planet earth uh, until you get to heaven. And we can say, Whew, earth was bad and I didn't have to go to hell and I get to go to heaven. But every minute, every hour, every day, there is something that God is doing in and through the gospel and through his people and the power of it. And as we're talking about this idea of lens change, if we're talking about this idea of spiritual eyes, before we even jump into 2 Kings chapter 6, put your finger there, look at Ephesians chapter 1. The apostle Paul, as he was teaching the church at Ephesus, was saying the same thing. As the walls were closing in with persecution, as the gospel was moving forth, it was at the same time being squeezed by People were dying. People were literally being thrown in prison and dying because of carrying the gospel. And the Apostle Paul speaking and encouraging the church in Ephesians chapter 1. And one of the things that he wants them to do is to open their eyes. But he wants it in a specific way. He says, I keep asking 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. This is an earthly wisdom or an earthly eye opening. This is a spiritual wisdom and a spiritual revelation so that you may know him better. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The eyes of your heart, a spiritual opening of the eyes. That you may know the hope which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Same power that God exerted to raise Jesus from the dead is the power of the spirit as followers of Jesus that's available to us. And that is pretty insane to even think about. And the apostle Paul is wanting them to know, he's wanting to encourage them with their spiritual eyes to see something that in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of the walls coming in, that they would see something different. And I was thinking about this idea of, you know, how perception works and how we perceive things here on planet earth. I don't know if any of you have ever, like when we talk about our eyes, our eyes are pretty amazing. Like the, the rods in your eyes, the way that they work, the way that we see color, that color, I don't know if you've ever heard this. We don't really, color is not really something that's there. It's the way that the light reacts with the rods in your eyes. So the way that you see blue might not be the way that I see blue which is crazy to think about, individually created, individual ways that we see things, but the way that we see things are completely different. But our eyes are really, really incredible. Any of you ever seen Brain Games with Jason Silva? Anybody used to watch that? My kids used to, anybody hands just make me feel, okay, I, good, that you haven't seen it because yeah, I'm sure you've seen it. Geek, um, I'm kidding. So check this out. All of us will pretty much see the same thing, but if you look at these, these two squares, just tell me which one is the lighter square? The bottom. I mean, the bottom is the lighter, the lighter square and the lighter color gray. Now, I just want to let you know right now that your eyes have absolutely lied to you. Your perception and what you're seeing is absolutely lying to you. Just slowly kind of add and block away the shading because shading and shadows are something that your three-dimensional or your two-dimensional plane and your two-dimensional eyes don't. Just keep going. Just keep going and watch how things kind of progress here. There's one color gray. What's the other? Is the other gray? What does it look like? Let's just keep going. Keep going. Is it, is it the same? I don't know. I think they might actually be the same color gray. Isn't that the strangest thing ever? That is the rods in your eyes. It's the way that God created you to use and, and detect and, and use shadows and light from above so that we can operate as we see two-dimensionally in a three-dimensional world that we walk around in so we don't fall into potholes. But when you shade images and you look at things a certain way, it, it, it is things are there that we don't think are there and then things are not there that we think are there. I mean, that is some crazy stuff that's going on in the eyes. Now, not only are your eyes something where you have a perception problem, that they, they fall short sometimes in the way that we see things, the way that we perceive things in general in life. Psychologists often will say that you see the world as you are. Like the way that you see the world, you see the world as you are. And, and what that means is, Everybody in here has had an individual collection of experiences, the things that you've gone through in life, the things that you, the way that you grew up, the neighborhood you grew up in, the parents that you've had, the school that you went to, the friends that you had, the jobs you've had, the difficult circumstances that you've walked through, or the wonderful joy-filled joy experiences that you've had. 
Everybody's are different, and that shades or changes your reality. I mean, some people will even go as far as to say, you know, your perception is reality. There is no real truth. It's your truth in the way that you see things. Now, I don't, obviously, that's, I think, a worldly point of view that there is absolute truth. But there is some truth in terms of everybody sees things differently based on circumstances and the world around us. And there's some particular circumstances psychologists talk about that actually hamper your cognitive resources. They actually crush your cognitive resources and you actually can only see a very small pocket of life in those circumstances. And one of those is called scarcity. Now, a scarcity mentality is when your basic needs are threatened or even a higher up on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, your emotional needs are being threatened. So if food, water, shelter, all those things are being threatened, all of a sudden scarcity mentality comes in. Or if, you know, your emotional needs, you know, your sense of self, you know, your self-worth, how you fit in with the rest of the world, the pecking order in life, that is kind of the way that the scarcity mentality works. A guy named Sharam Hazmat, PhD in psychology, says it this, this way. He says, the context of scarcity makes you myopic. It narrows the lens of what we see exhibiting bias toward the here and now. The mind is focused on present scarcity, what we don't have or what's being threatened. We overvalue immediate benefits at the expense of future ones. We only attend to urgent things. We fail to make small investments when the future benefits can actually be substantial. To attend to the future requires cognitive resources which scarcity depletes. In this mentality, we lose resources. We lose our sight. We need cognitive resources to plan and resist present temptations. It depletes your resources when you're in that place of something being threatened. All of a sudden, instead of being aware of everything that's around you, planning for the future, thinking about the people that you love, thinking about the world around you, being generous, being philanthropic, thinking about anything, all of a sudden, we, we become extremely self-aware of who we are, how we're operating in life, and what, what we're missing, like what we need to continue in life. That is scarcity mentality. And there's different levels of it in all of life. And all of you probably even right now are thinking, yeah, I've gone through seasons of life when scarcity mentality hits, when fear and anxiety hit, like when anything in that realm, and here's the, here's the bad news. There's some good news today, but the bad news is the enemy that operates, Satan, just say it, you know, it's Halloween, just say Satan. He has, one, he has one job, and, he's, and it's listed in three things. On, if he had a business card, steal, kill, and destroy. I said this when we had the rise gathering. He wants to bury you, and he knows that scarcity will narrow your lens physically in your eyes, but it will also narrow your lens spiritually as you walk on planet Earth. He knows that it works. He knows that he can get you to the place of fear and anxiety. He knows that it will render you inept in carrying the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. It will render you inept in the way that you manage your marriage or the way that you interact with your husband or wife, the way that you interact with your friends, the way that you interact with work, the way that you interact with the world around you. He knows that it is a valuable weapon in Putting it, putting it in our mind, putting it in our heart to think that certain things are threatened and we have to take care of these and our lens and our scope gets so narrow and becomes so self-focused that it changes the way that we look at everything. There's a reason that God mentions 
fear and this idea of scarcity all through scripture. Jesus dropped the gauntlet. Like he, he kind of hit the high point of you shouldn't be scared. And he even says it to this degree. He says, if you, if you attempt to save your life, if all you're worried about is you, if all you're worried about is your journey here on planet earth, guess what's going to happen? You're going to lose your life. That is not going to be the joy-filled life. That will not be the abundant life. That will be a miserable life. He tells them right there, you, you save your life, you're going to lose your life. But if you're willing to lose your life for my sake, you will gain everything. You will gain the whole world. If your eyes are open, if you lift your eyes off of yourself and realize that you have nothing to fear, that walking with me and following me is the way of eternal life. It's the way of the abundant life. You will have life forevermore. I mean, it's one of those challenging statements because we are self-preservationists at heart. Our sinful nature is I'm the captain of my own ship and I got to make sure this ship doesn't go down. But there's something at hand when it comes to the gospel. And man, it, it's right here in this passage in such a beautiful way. If you got your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 6, if the apostle Paul wanted to attach a narrative to what he said in Ephesians chapter 1, it would be in 2 Kings chapter 6. Like he would say, there's an actual real life story that happened in a real life, actually not far from here, in a real life location that, that says everything that he's trying to say in Ephesians. Now I wanna get you caught up, come and listen to yours. I'm gonna try to do this as quickly as I can if you haven't been around. Some of you haven't been around since 2014, so you don't know exactly how in the world did we get to 2 Kings chapter six. So in Genesis, God created the world, right? Heavens, earth, spoke everything to existence. Um, a man and woman and everything is good. Relationships, amazing. Everything's going well until what? Chapter three, then the serpent, right at the very top of the passage. And all of a sudden he whispers half truths and half lies in their ears and tells them, hey, you can be the captain of your own ship. You can lead your own life. God is lying to you. He's saying that he should be God and you should be his people, but that's not the way it should go. You can be your own gods. You could have all of the knowledge. And of course they sin, they eat the apple, they get booted out of the garden of Eden, two fiery angels at the east end. They aren't coming back in because you have a holy God and broken and sinful people that can't be together. So things go south from there, Genesis chapter three. And then all of a sudden we have Abraham on the scene. Right? He's a, 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 in a pagan household, in a pagan land, and God comes to him and says, hey, just look up at the sky, Abraham. See all those stars? That is going to be your family. And that, that is going to be my people. And they will be my people, and I will be their God. Then you have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. They grow from a small family into over 2 million people. But the only problem is they've spent 400 years enslaved in Egypt. And then all of a sudden God raises up a man. He's 80 years old. I mean, he's like at the end of his life thinking, man, I'm, I am definitely beyond retirement age. And God says, okay, now I'm going to use you. And he's like, I don't want to do it. I kind of stutter. I don't really. And God says, nope, you're going to go tell Pharaoh that he needs to let my people go. He says, I don't want to tell him that. He says, you're going to go. That's, that's it. I'm, you're going to be the instrument in my hand. So he goes and tells Pharaoh, hey, God told me you got to let his people go. Pharaoh says, I'm not going to let the people go. Then the plagues hit. And Pharaoh goes, uh-oh, I better let the people go. So he lets the people go. And then all of a sudden he goes, there goes my slave force. Oh, no, I'm not going to let the people go. So they're chasing two million people, the Egyptian army, right? And then we have the Charlton Heston moment, Prince of Egypt moment, where God comes. Moses stands and begs God to do something and Red Sea is parted. Israelites pass through on dry land. Egyptian army is destroyed. They have a little worship service on the other side. And then they start complaining for 40 years, wandering in the wilderness. And then all of a sudden Moses sends right on the precipice of the promised land. And Moses has to hand 
the mantle off to Joshua. But Joshua is kind of like William Wallace and Braveheart, and he is like scorched earth, kicks some serious butt in Canaan. It really was uncomfortable to preach in Joshua, to be honest. And when we got, in, got into that, it got even more uncomfortable as we got into Judges because the Israelites are with the Canaanites, and God told them, don't mix in with the Canaanites. That's not what you're going to do. You're not going to do the things that they do. They are pagan. You're going to take over this land. They said, no, let's just kind of hang out with them and do our own thing. And all of a sudden, they get ingrained into that civilization. And so the judges come along and try to lead them to repentance, aren't very successful. That was probably even a more uncomfortable uh, book to lead through. And then you have this glimmer of hope in the book of Ruth, this, you know, a Gentile woman who you wouldn't think would be one of God's people because she wasn't even Jewish. And all of a sudden we see this beautiful story with Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, and she's in the actual line of Christ. And then we get into first and second Samuel. Samuel's a prophet and he is the one that's going to anoint kings, but he didn't actually want to anoint a king. The people wanted a king. They're like, we want kings like everybody else has a king, right? And he says, hey, why do you want a king like everybody else has a king? You have the king of kings. They're like, no, we want a king like everybody else has. So he anoints Saul. Saul starts out good, goes bad. And then all of a sudden we have David. David starts out good, goes bad. There's a whole epic story that is actually like Braveheart. Somebody should make that movie. It is amazing. And then David hands the mantle off to Solomon. Solomon is wise. Solomon is wealthy. Sol Solomon parties like Puff Daddy or P. Diddy or whatever his name is and gets everything that anybody would possibly want. At the end of the day, he says, it's all meaningless. He dies, hands the kingdom off to Rehoboam. Nobody likes Rehoboam. So they raise up a guy named Jeroboam. Jeroboam takes over the northern part of Israel and uh, Rehoboam keeps Judah and, uh, um, and uh, Benjamin and that becomes that the tribe of Judah and then we've got the northern kingdom which is Israel. So we've got a split kingdom. Now we're getting close to where we are. God raises up prophets to help uh, try to guide the kings. Most of them were bad, uh, almost 40 kings in total and, and kings. And that's kind of where we ended up. We got the transition from Elijah to Elisha, who is two times the power of God. He made an axe head float. He raised people from the dead. He watched Elijah go up on a chariot of fire into heaven and never die. Pretty crazy stuff that you see in the Bible. And that is where we are in 2 Kings chapter 6. All right, you're all caught up. And now we're done. Close your Bibles and we will go home. So if you got your Bible, listen to this. So we've got, this isn't an actual location. I might have a map of this. I don't know if we threw the map in there, but this is, I just want you to know this is an actual location. So you've got the armies of Aram are fighting Israel and they're off, if you could, in the black area on the side of the map, that's where they are. That would be modern day Syria. And then you've got Northern Israel, that's kind of, it's not divided in that particular picture, but right there, if you see Dothan, you see some of those other places across that on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the very top, that little body of water at the, the top, that's where Syria begins to start and where Aram is. And they kept coming over the border and fighting Israel. I just wanted you to see that so you know that this is actual. When you read these stories, they took, they took place. Like Sea of Galilee, you can go there today. You can see where all this went down. Because sometimes you read this, you're like, this sounds crazy. And it does, but it happened and it's in a real place. Second Kings 6, verse 8. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God, who was Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel. It was Jehu at the time, I believe. Beware of passing that place because the Aramans are going down there. These people are coming to get you again. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. And time and again, Elisha warned the king that warn the king so that he was on guard in such places. Now, back in Aram, this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded them, tell me 
which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? He's like, well, how does he know all the time where we're going to be? It's like, we show up, we know that they're there. They were there yesterday. We got word that they were there yesterday. And all of a sudden they've moved to somewhere else. How in the world do they know? Is that, I mean, it's like, there's, he's like, is the room bug? Is there a mole? Is there an NSA agent? Is there a laptop? I don't know. Too soon, too soon. I know. So he goes on and he asks the question in verse 12. He says, none of us, my Lord King, said one of his officers, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. He's like, this guy, for whatever reason, when he's, he's not even anywhere around, he's got some sort of antenna, something, he's got Alexa's in there listening. I don't know what's happening. You ever think that? And the king's like, what's happening? I did know that the ads always come up and say, you are searching for a crown on Amazon. And how did they even know? Something must be listening in my bedroom. But anyway, he's like, what's happening? CIA, phone tapped. He's like, we got to go find this guy. So verse 13, he says, go find out where this guy is, the king ordered so I can send my men and capture him. Now, this is probably the dumbest thing I've ever seen a king do right there. Because they're having this conversation about everything that you're saying in your, in your room here is being listened to by Elisha's Alexa machine to God. And he's not, he's right there. And he's like, all right, we're going to go find him. Let's formulate a plan. And they're having this conversation. He's still listening to you. I mean, come on. You got to be, this guy's not too smart. So he goes on sends the guys out, the report comes back and says, he is in Dothan. Let that sink in for a minute. Not Alabama, by the way. Some of you are like, I've been to Dothan. I was born in Dothan. It's a different Dothan, people. Um, it's in present day Syria. So in verse 14, he says, all right, we're gonna send some people there. He sends horses and chariots and a strong force and they went by night. And they're like, we're gonna, be, we're gonna try to be secret. Went by night. And they surrounded the city. So they go to Dothan. Elijah's there, or Elisha's there with him and his servant. Army of Israel's not there. Nobody's there. He is kind of rolling just with his buddy, just the two of them. And all of a sudden, an entire army of thousands is surrounding the city of Dothan. And I wanted to stop right there because I think that, that there's definitely some people in here that feel like they're surrounded like the walls coming in. I mean, as I was going through that, I've heard stories just even this week that I, I can't, that have made my, that have crushed my heart inside because of the loss that people I know that they're, they're feeling right now in this moment. And the world is coming in around them. And they're wondering where God is. They're wondering how they're gonna get out of it. They're wondering what's happening. People that are walking through hopeless situations, people that are wondering, what am I gonna do next? People that all of a sudden the lens has become extremely narrowed because the pressure cooker is on. I've been abandoned in some way. I feel very lost. People that I thought were normal people all of a sudden have gone crazy in and around my life. My health is, something has just taken a turn with my health and I, I was perfectly healthy and now all of a sudden I'm in a tragic situation, a situation where I don't know what the outcome is gonna be. My relationship with this person was great for 15, 20 years and all of a sudden there's a fracture that I don't think can be healed. I know there's people in here that, that feel that way and I just want you to know that you know, for some of us, I think this message is maybe, maybe for the future. I think all of us will... I know for a fact with confidence, all of us will need this message sometime, but there's somebody in here that needs it right now. You need this message right now. And here it comes. This is so amazing. Verse 15, he says, when the servant 
of the man got up. So Elisha's servant gets up. He went out early in the morning. An army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. And what does he say? Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asks. Listen to this. Here comes unbelievable defiant faith of a prophet. He says, don't be afraid. The prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Come on. I mean, what is the servant thinking at this point? Like, um, it's just me and you, bro. <laughs> you know, you got chariots. And, and what I love about that is because I think that's, that's the, the moment that we get in as Christians. We have the power that it, it was exerted to raise Christ from the grave. It lives in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. But yet our spiritual lens, our physical lens gets so narrowed. And what we see with our physical eyes is I, there's no way out. I don't see what you're seeing. But here you've got defiant faith. Hey, don't be afraid. Do you know how many times in, in, in the Bible, in, in different ways, in, uh, so many different word studies. Rick Warren did a word study one time, said there's 365 times where God says, don't be afraid. Not because you're awesome, but because I'm awesome. Because of my sovereignty, because of my sufficiency, and because of my plan for your life. And the, the fact that I love you. 300, that's one for every day. 61 times where he says exactly the words, don't be afraid. And usually it's in the midst of a situation where you and I would look around and go, oh no, my Lord. <laughs> you know, that's where God says it. And that's where the prophet's saying it here. In verse 17, I love this. This is his response. Didn't, get on, didn't Google anything. And call his buddies and go, ah. he prayed. He said, open his eyes, speaking of his servant, open his eyes, Lord. It reminds me of the Paul Beloche song. I don't know if any of you remember that song. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I'm old, sorry. It's amazing. See, you're saying, open the eyes of my heart. All right. Open the eyes, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes. I just want to say that again. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes. You know why that's important for us? The Lord opened the servant's eyes. You know why? Because nothing else can open your spiritual eyes but God. Nobody else, not your friend, not the Google machine. I got to figure it out. I can't swipe enough to get enough information here to figure out how I'm going to diagnose what it is I have. I got to figure out what's happening. I can't, I got to follow them and track them because I want to see if they're telling me the truth. Nobody's going to open your eyes, but God, I'm not, I could preach till I'm blue in the face, but God can open your eyes. If you're petitioning somebody to open your eyes or to give you a view of something or to try to figure something out, there is one person that can open your spiritual eyes and reveal something to you that will change your life forever. Despite your circumstances, no matter what you go through, no matter what you walk through, it is possible that God could open your eyes. He opened the eyes of his servant and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You got the angel armies, you got the chariots of fire, you've got a new, and these weren't physical eyes that were being opened. It was the Lord opening his eyes to see what's happening in the heavenlies, to see what's happening in the spiritual realms. 
he opened his eyes. And I just want to say just a few things. I got three points, three eye-openers in this eye-opening passage. And then we're going to continue this passage here at the end. But the first one is God wants you to see more and not less. God wants you to see more and not less. And what I mean by that is that God's not coming into your circumstances to, to like all of a sudden put a, a little sheet over your circumstances. You better put the sheet on there because if he sees this, he's going to freak out. No, God wants you to see it. Like there, this isn't about denial. I think sometimes in Christian world, we're like, don't speak it out. Don't say it. Don't say that there's a mountain in front of you because then, the, you know, then that's going to be become your reality. Don't word curse yourself. Don't put yourself in that place. No, the circumstances there, the mountains in front of you, the can in front of you, the divorce is in front of you. The, everything is there. You need to see it. It doesn't mean that we shut that down, deny it, and then say, give me the unicorn and the rainbow and the lollipop because that's what I'll take on into the future. No, we see the circumstances. He's not clouding your circumstances or covering your circumstances. He doesn't want you to see less. He wants you to see more. He wants you to see your circumstances, and then he wants you to see his sufficiency in your circumstances. He wants you to see his sovereignty in his plan. He wants you to see his love for you and how much he cares for you. He wants you to see more and not less. He wants you to have a revelation of who he is in the midst of your circumstance, that God is with you, that he'll never leave you. I always think about it this way. I don't know why several years ago, it just kind of popped in my mind because I'm very into like, uh, like home renovation. I just, it's interior design and decorating. I'll say it. I, I still keep my man card. I'm a little bit redneck and I like design. Some people call me a metro neck. I don't know why, but that's just what happens with me. But you know, like the old, there's so many renovation shows now. I'm looking at my mom, my dad, this is why it happened. Look at my dad. He is a redneck. My mom, artistic interior designer. That's what she does. Bingo. Um, so HGTV, you got renovation shows and you know how they like, somebody will have a renovation budget. They'll show them three disaster houses and the designer's kind of excited. The whole, they're walking through the houses, holding their nose going, there's no hope for this room. There's no hope for this house. And all the while the master, the designer has got his little laptop and he knows he's gonna show them something about how this house will be renovated, how this house will be redeemed. And then he goes away and goes, ha ha, comes back, does his little, blah, 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 comes back with his laptop and goes, whing, slings it around. And they're like, we had no idea, you know, renovation. And what is the master doing? What's the designer doing? He's opening the eyes saying, hey, you might've thought there is no hope here. You might've thought in this circumstance, in this place, in this house, in this room, there's no hope for redemption. But I just wanna show you, I wanna give you my eyes. I wanna give, give, give you the designer's eyes, the master's eyes in this moment, so you can see that there is hope, that redemption is possible. Nothing is ever too far gone. And that's what God wants us to see and experience in the world. I mean, who needs that in 2020? with what we see with our physical eyes, the craziness that's going on, the, the, the kind of disparate relationships that have happened, people that have divided. I mean, people are looking at people that they love and they're like, I can't believe that you think this way. And they haven't talked in 2020 just because it's an election year. And God wants us to see something different, something greater, something bigger. He wants us to see more, not less. I mean, Jesus was clear. John 16, 33 says, in this life, you're gonna have trouble. He didn't avoid it. He didn't say, hey, let's give him the, let's, it's unicorn time. Let's do that. 
He says, you're going to have trouble. He's telling the disciples who would all go to their death carrying the gospel, except for one, John, who would be exiled to the island of Patmos. He's going, you're going to have trouble, boys. You're going to have trouble, people. But he didn't stop there. He says, what? I want you to see more. I want you to see that I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. That's what he wants for you and me. Our eyes can't be opened by our friend. They can't be opened by anybody else, but God can open our eyes. And that's what we should be praying for, to have spiritual eyes. Right now, in this moment, we need it. I need it. I walk in here sometimes with the cloud, with the shroud of no hope. And I need my eyes open. So God wants you to see more, not less. God gives us lenses of faith. He gives us lenses of faith. He wants us to see that he's sovereign. He wants us to see that he's sufficient. He wants us to see that he loves us. I mean, the first thing that we see, the first lens we see is prayer. Elisha goes right to God. Hey, the only, buddy, the only person that can flip the lens. I mean, it's like when you go to the eye doctor and they, and they all of a sudden, you, you didn't even know how bad your vision was and they start flipping those lenses and you're like, oh my gosh, I can see the letter G! And you're like all excited. I mean, this is what we want God to do with us. I mean, I remember when I figured out, my, my wife was like, you squint all the time. Even now, I'll forget to put my glasses on. And she's like, why are you looking? Why don't, they're right there or they're, all, or they're around your neck. They're like, please, but your, your eyes are gonna shrink back and your eyeball is gonna end up in the back of your head if you keep doing this. And she goes, she'll literally grab them and go, bing. And I'm like, miracles, you know? It's what God wants us to do. He wants us to open our eyes. He wants to give us these lenses of faith. He's like, you could pray for this and God will open eyes in the midst of prayer. We talk way too much. Get on the phone with each other, gossip around things and all of our troubles when we should be on our knees. The other thing is the word of God. If you look at the, I love this, preaching to yourself is an important thing. And the only way that you can preach to yourself the truth is to know the word of God. I mean, if you think about what is, what, what, like if you look at the, the 23rd Psalm, I mean, that is David preaching to himself. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You know, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He, he, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will fear no evil. In other words, he's saying, no matter what my circumstances are, I'm gonna have this lens that I know God knows what's going on and he loves me and he's sufficient to save me in this moment. One of my favorite Psalms is uh, Psalm 27. It is amazing because it is one I held on one of the darkest times of my life where I'm telling you, I was in scarcity mentality. I mean, I walked through a season for about three years. It was just absolutely tragic and horrible, at least for me. I mean, it was a dark time. And then the word of God started bubbling up in my heart as I read it out of desperation because I didn't know where else to go or what else to do. But Psalm 27, just absolutely preaching to myself, the word of God, the Lord is my, this is what it is. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Listen to this. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me and my heart will not fear. Although I see, although it looks like I'm surrounded by all these armies, although the walls feel like they're coming in, although what's in front of me are divorce papers, although what's in front of me is an absolutely unknown medical issue where I don't know what the end will be. What's in front of me is I've experienced a loss and I will not get this person back. 
because they're gone. The walls are coming in and the enemy is wanting me to sit in this place of fear and anxiety. But it is the enemy who will stumble and fall. Even though war breaks out against me, even though, even when that happens, I will be confident. And then this is what he says. He's preaching to himself while he's in a hole with the enemy coming in on him. One thing I ask from the Lord, this is the one thing I need. You talk about blowing up scarcity mentality and eyes wide open. He says, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. I mean, this is how we get the numbers up at church right here, right? That I dwell in the house of the Lord. This is where it's gonna happen. All the days of my life and gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. So we got the word of God bubbling up. He knows the word of God. That, that God, he's, he's, this is where he understands and knows you will never leave me or forsake me. You need those words in your mouth. You need to know that he did everything that we see. He created the entire world, yet he cares for you. He's mindful of you. You need to know that he knows the hairs on your head. You need to know that he knit you together in his mother's womb. You need to know that he is your light and your salvation. He is the stronghold of your life. You need to speak those words over your heart. But, the, but he's digging into even more. He says, I want to be in the house of the Lord. I want to be in the place of worship. I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord in his temple. And we need that. That's, that's worship. I mean, worship, God absolutely deserves our worship. It is an offering. It is a sacrifice that we make that we bring to God. But worship, God, God doesn't need it. God's not up there thinking, man, I need, I, I need another Hillsong hit. I mean, I'm feeling kind of down. He doesn't. I mean, if we didn't sing it, the, the, the rocks would cry out. He's got the sun, the moon, the stars. He's got all of creation, all of the universe. They will cry out his name. But God knows that we need it. We need to proclaim his worth. We need to proclaim his sufficiency. We need to proclaim his sovereignty. We need to see with our eyes and with our heart how much he loves us as we gaze at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's what changes things in here. It's why we hear this story has an empty grave and I want to come up out of my shoes and go, thank you, Jesus. You are sufficient and you love me. We need that. Matt Redmond says this, because I think worship leaders, and Gerald would agree with me, I think you're always trying to get people in that place. How can I get these people to sing and not just do this, you know? Matt Redmond says, you know what? Worship is not, it's, it's so much less about singing and it's so much more about seeing. Seeing. Because when the people see, they will sing. When you see the cross of Jesus Christ, when you see the blood poured out in your mind, when you read those lyrics, when you begin to sing them together in unison in the church, we begin to see the beauty of God's, God's plan in the midst of a tragedy, his overarching story. We thought, we, we thought in that moment, if the people that were standing at the foot of the cross that loved Jesus, they thought this is the end. The walls are coming in. We are surrounded, but God had surrounded that situation. He had planned that situation. It was the way out, not the demise for you and me or Jesus. We need to gaze. Confidence is determined by what you keep in view. Confidence is determined by what you keep in view. What do we keep in view? There's a reason that we come. We don't gather at church just because it's the thing that we should do. It's the thing we get to do because it opens our spiritual eyes. It puts us in a position together with the rest of the saints to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to gaze on Jesus and run freely towards him. The last thing, and this is it, is with new eyes, you get a new heart. And this one might not feel so great because I think we all wanna crush the enemy 
under our foot. Now, the real enemy we do, but we don't wage war against flesh and blood. The people around us sometimes seem like they're the enemy. In verse 18, it says, as the enemy went down toward Elisha. So we get back in the story, chariots of fire. The enemy is not seeing the chariots of fire, not seeing the Lord's armies. They start moving in towards Elisha. Elisha moves towards them. And he says, strike this army with blindness. And some of you might be thinking, yeah, I know I've got somebody in my life. It works in my office. I wish you would strike Amy blind. That would be fantastic. She is my enemy. But that's not the kind of blindness that's happening here. So he says, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness. So God was faithful in the moment. And Elisha, just as Elisha had asked, and Elisha told them, this is not the road. So he's talking to the, the soldiers. Now this, what, what the commentary says and what people that have studied this said, this isn't like total blindness or it would have been total chaos. He kind of, it was kind of a stunning and a dazing because they didn't recognize Elisha, didn't recognize the servant. And they're just listening to him and following him. It's almost like he's got him under just like a Holy Spirit kind of deal going on. He, say, he tells them, this is not the road. This is not the city. You're looking for this guy and I'll lead you to him. He says, follow me and I'll lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. Now that's where the, the Israel's army, that was the capital of the Northern kingdom of Israel. That's where the, the, the real armies are. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and they were inside of Samaria and they knew, uh-oh. And when the king saw them, he asked Elijah, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? I love that. Because I, I think what sits in our heart, you know, crush that person in front of me that abandoned me, that left me, the person that's talking about me, the person that's ruining my reputation. The, what does he say? He says, don't kill them, he answered. Would you kill those that you've captured with your own sword and bow? He's like, hey, there's some, we have some rules actually in war. You don't just wipe everybody out. Instead, this is what he says, to set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had, this is the enemy, by the way, great feast. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands of Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Now, I didn't like the end of that. I was like, I like this, you know, enemy surrounds me, open my eyes, I can see things when I'm in difficult circumstances. Then all of a sudden it was like, bless those, you know. You know, the third point here is this idea of new eyes, new heart. Blessing somebody that curses me. Blessing my enemy. I'm like, man, I just don't like that. You know, I want to, I want to cry. I want to, I want, I want Jennifer to go blind. You know, I, I want, I want, sorry, if your name's Jennifer, you're not going blind, but you, you, you feel me. But in a, in a moment I was reading this passage and it just, it dawned on me. I just, it was like instantaneously. I'm like, here the enemy is lifting, raising the glass, breaking the bread. And I was like, right here in the Old Testament, you've got the, the broken body, you've got the blood poured out, you've got, all of a sudden, you've got this amazing thing where the enemies of God are being redeemed. And I just thought, oh, I'm the enemy. And I'm the one that was shown mercy. I'm the one that was the rebel. I'm the one that was on the outside 
I'm the one that should have been wiped out. I'm the one that should have been killed. I'm the one that should have taken on the punishment. I'm the one that should have been crushed under God's feet. But God extended me mercy by way of his son. Body broken, blood poured out for me. The blessed generosity of the cross of Jesus Christ. That me now as the recipient of the wonderful, beautiful renovation of God, no hope in this room, can go out and carry this message to the world and extend mercy. And man, we need it right now. Right now, you, there's, there's moments standing in an election line with somebody with a hat on and a shirt on and you wanna crush them under your feet. And I'm telling you, you don't wage war against flesh and blood. You think you have differences with people, but I'm telling you, we are human beings. God created us as his children. And we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we all need redemption. And if you've received redemption, you love your enemy. You don't hate him. Right now, there's such anger in our country. There's such anger. Man, we could, we could shine a big, bright, beautiful light on Jesus to have our spiritual eyes opened and to see that we were once the enemy and God loved us. So now, guess what? The enemy might be out there in our own eyes, but we don't wage war against flesh and blood. God's mercy can fall on them and it can happen through me. Maybe you're here today and you've, you don't even, you're just like, man, I've never really felt like I've received grace and mercy, but I sure would like to know Jesus. I'm telling you, he's here. You're here right now for that reason, that you might see him, that your eyes might be open. Maybe they're already open right now. Like you're seeing something you've never seen before. And I'm telling you, God's saying, come home. I've been pursuing you and I'm sufficient to save. Let's stand. God, we love you. We love that you give us your word. That you opened our eyes to see you, to see where our help comes from. Just come.